This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. If you've paid even a little bit of attention to the political news of the past several years, you are familiar with my guest today. Congressman Adam Schiff represents the 28th District of California in the Los Angeles suburbs. He's the chairperson of the House Intelligence Committee, where he played a pivotal role in the impeachment of Donald Trump, both from the committee then as an impeachment manager during the trial itself. He's been the target of nonstop vile and personal attacks from the president and his lackeys, and it is my absolute honor to have him join us here today. The questions presented by this impeachment inquiry are whether President Trump sought to exploit that ally's vulnerability and invite Ukraine's interference in our elections, whether President Trump sought to condition official acts such as a White House meeting or U.S. military assistance on Ukraine's willingness to assist with two political investigations that would help his re-election campaign. Vicious and mean. Vicious. These people are Those acts of obstruction of justice, whether they are criminal or not, are deeply alarming in the President of the United States. Vicious and mean. Vicious. Special Counsel Mueller wanted the Congress to consider the repercussions and the consequences. The special counsel believed that no one was above the law, and that includes the president of the United States. People are vicious. If right doesn't matter, if right doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how good the Constitution is. Adam Schiff is a vicious, horrible person. It has to be a criminal act. It has to be. And he should resign. And some people even say it was treason. Hi, my name is Adam Schiff, and I'm the congressman from Burbank, California. I fought tooth and nail to protect our democracy, and right now, what matters most is keeping people healthy and safe. Sorry, not sorry. So, Congressman, the first thing I want to talk to you about, obviously, is the coronavirus. If I were to have thought that we would be in this place, even just a month ago, I'm pretty up to date on the news. And when we started to hear about the coronavirus, it just felt like it was so far away that it could never touch us. And now every aspect of life in America has changed in ways that most of us just could not have imagined. So just walk us through your thoughts on the federal government's response thus far? Well, I think you're absolutely right. The speed at which this has moved has been just uh, breathtaking. And I think we're all trying to come to grips with what it means in the near term, what it means in the long term for the country. In terms of the response, we lost precious time, frankly, while the administration 
tried to downplay the significance of this, even when it became quite apparent that we were not going to be able to keep this virus out of the country. That was never a practical idea. We could try to limit our exposure, but it was going to come here. We lost very important time in developing tests and distributing them widely and being able to essentially surveil this virus and see where it was and do so at a time, I think, when it was very important to try to minimize the spread. That's time we'll never get back. And I think that for quite a while, the president viewed this as more of a public relations crisis uh, than a health crisis. Uh, those days are now over, but we have a lot of catching up to do. And and sadly, we missed a lot of time. Now, in the Congress, we moved to pass a couple bills in rapid succession to try to surge resources to our hospitals and clinics to try to speed the development of a vaccine, to try to make sure in the second bill that we provided for paid sick leave, that we provided extended unemployment compensation, food for kids that would normally get their food at school, and other really key emergency measures. But even those are really a down payment on what's necessary to address both the health crisis and the burgeoning economic crisis. I was talking to Dr. Peter Hotez. He is most concerned with the fact that regardless of people's ages, it seems like those in the healthcare system are getting hit as hard as someone, say, past 70. There's been a couple of ER doctors that are now on respirators, and they're in their 40s or 50s. That's not supposed to happen until they're in their 70s. There's so much that they don't know. But what he said was, and this is what I wanted to pass on to you, is he said the government needs to put together some plan for convalescent antibody therapy for our first responders and our doctors. And basically what that is, is patients who recover from COVID-19, they develop antibodies to the virus and those antibodies can be collected from a blood donation of a recovered patient and then processed and then turned around either as therapy for potentially sick patients or as temporary preventative care for first responders or frontline healthcare workers. And it's a therapy that's over 100 years old and was used with success during the 1918 flu pandemic. So I wanted to pass that on to you. Convalescent antibody therapy, he thinks it needs to start happening right now as they're working for the vaccine. Well, that makes a great deal of sense. And it's something I will look into immediately. I would hope and presume that our federal government, in terms of the administration and our healthcare experts, are already penciling out and planning this. Let's not take anything for granted these days. Absolutely true. So what does it feel like in Congress right now? I mean, is there a sense of urgency and just the functionality of how Congress works? I mean, I've walked those halls. You guys are in very close proximity to one another in your offices and with your staff. What's going on in Congress right now? There's a real sense of urgency. We're obviously hearing a great deal from our constituents, our neighbors, our families, our friends, and we're particularly concerned with taking every measure we can to flatten this curve and do what we can to push out good information. It's why I really was eager to participate in your podcast. The the more good information we can get out there, the more that people can take steps on their own to mitigate the spread, uh, the more we can relieve some of the enormous pressure and strain that is being placed on our healthcare system and save lives. But also, you know, all the members are deeply concerned about the economic impacts of yeah. 
closing down all restaurants and bars and movie theaters and places where people congregate. Obviously, it's impacting anyone connected with those industries in any way, shape, or form, or those that are the customers. And when the customers dry up, those businesses dry up. And so I think there's also a sense of urgency to deal with the economic impacts. I think that'll be the subject of the next big bill coming out of Congress. And many of us are advocating that we send cash to each and every American immediately to help get them through this difficult time, to help keep struggling businesses afloat. We want to make sure that the Small Business Administration is fully funded and can provide emergency loans to small businesses. But in terms of the mechanics at the Capitol, we are doing as much teleworking as possible. We're trying to be a good example as well. But there are certain things that we're going to need to be present for. We're going to need to come in, I think, and vote on a new package. Even now, the package that passed the House, we're still running into difficulties among some of the members with that. And if that's a foreshadow of future difficulties where one or two members can hold up a relief for an entire nation, then we're going to have to make sure that we're all hands on deck if that's necessary to steer the country through this. And how about the White House? Do you feel like they're working with Congress in a nonpartisan way? I'm not even going to say bipartisan because this should be zero partisan. Or does it still feel like there's headbutting? Well, I think that Speaker Pelosi and Mnuchin and the administration have been able to negotiate with each other. And I think that the experts at the agencies, people like Dr. Fauci, are providing their best advice and recommendations You know, the president is as he will always be. For the president, it's always about him. And that makes it very difficult to negotiate with or get to yes when someone's predominant concern is for themselves. But we hope that he rises to the occasion. There's certainly, I think, a different tone in the last day or two in the press conference, although he still has a eagerness to lash out at others. And the fights that he's been provoking with state governors are very I think detrimental to getting an appropriate federal and state and local response. But look, we're all in this together. We're going to have to overcome and overlook our differences uh, during this crisis. Uh, We've, I think, moved very quickly on important legislation. We've got to be able to continue to do that. And we'll certainly do our part in Congress and hope the administration does its part. He's just so ego-driven, right? And I don't think there's ever been an opportunity wasted for a power grab And I'm just hoping that he's not going to use this in that same way. I mean, is that how you all are thinking about it as well? I mean, is that a concern for you? Do you think he'll use it as a power grab? My predominant concern right now is that we in the administration take all the steps necessary to protect the health of the American people and mitigate the harsh economic impacts on everyday Americans. As you know, I have very long-standing concerns about this president in every which way. This president is guided by one thing alone, and that is what's good for Donald Trump. The country doesn't matter that much. President Trump uh, said on Twitter, and then he reiterated at his press conference yesterday, that if the House Democrats, uh, with new subpoena power, uh, investigate him, he could have you all investigated as well. Uh, What's your response? Well, look, that uh, sounds like if he's talking about using the Justice Department uh, in order to do his bidding, another uh, violation of the rule of law. Um, If he's talking about having the Senate do it, I don't know what exactly he's referring to. But he's been on a war footing with Democrats from the very beginning. 
this is the first president who's made no effort to reach out to the other party, no effort to find common ground, who seems to get up every morning to find new and inventive ways to divide us, uh, certainly along lines of party, but also lines of race and ethnic origin and everything else. His propensity for falsehood and self-aggrandizement, his autocratic impulses, and that makes him ideally unsuited to run the country during a crisis of this kind. But we'll need to keep our focus on getting the work of the country done and addressing the pandemic. But we'll have to be vigilant also that the president doesn't take steps that are extra constitutional or otherwise seek to in any way make use of this emergency to aggrandize himself politically or in ways that that are not contemplated in our constitutional structure. I want to talk about a couple of things that happened before the Trump administration. You've been in office since 2001, and you took office less than a year before 9-11. And that was like three years after the Clinton impeachment. What was Congress like then? And are there specific differences between then and now? I remember in those more optimistic times in the beginning of 2001, before 9-11, the top issue in the country was the environment. And I remember environmentalists and others were ecstatic that finally this issue had reached the pinnacle of American public opinion and concern and interest and resources were starting to be devoted to the environment. And then 9-11 hit and the focus changed almost completely overnight to security. And of course, we've had one challenge after another since that time. And this poses a new and unprecedented challenge to the country. In terms of the character of the Congress between then and now, it certainly was no bipartisan haven even then, but it has become so much more partisan and the extremes have become so much more extreme. I think that the institutionalists who existed back in 2000 when I was elected are mostly gone. And it's really been to the detriment of the Congress because I think so many of the people who were in Congress when I was elected would never have put up with a president seeking to arrogate upon himself the power of the purse or attacking the independence of the Justice Department or attacking the freedom of the press or any number of things that this president has done. I think you would have had Republicans rise up against that kind of usurpation of authority and attack on our separation of powers. But those institutionalists are largely gone. They were many replaced by the Tea Party. I wonder if you would like to comment on uh, what it's like to be the subject of an allegation that, that you deliberately interfered with security that cost the life of a friend. Mm. Well, Congressman, it's a very personally painful um, accusation. It has been rejected and disproven by nonpartisan, dispassionate investigators. But nevertheless, having it continued to be bandied around is uh, deeply distressing to me. Republicans have defended the Benghazi investigation, saying they're not a partisan attack on Hillary, but merely an attempt to get at the truth. Although if that's true, how do you explain these comments from Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff? They have not worked with Democrats at all. They've called witnesses without telling us. They've interviewed several witnesses. They didn't tell us they were going to interview them. They didn't invite us to participate. So they've been holding meetings and just not inviting the Democrats. And now the Republican Party has essentially become a cult of personality around the president. So it's not as if we have really two functional parties anymore. We have a Democratic Party and we have a Trumpian party. Right. That's a very dramatic change from the days of George W. Bush, who 
you might disagree with on policy, and I certainly did, but he at least had respect for the institutions of our democracy in a way that this president doesn't. Well, you mentioned freedom of the press, and we all remember the horrible murder of Daniel Pearl. He was the journalist who was killed by ISIS. After that murder, you introduced legislation with then-Congressman Mike Pence to protect freedom of the press. Tell me a little bit about that bill. Well, you can tell how much the world has changed since that time. That involved the murder of an American journalist at the hands of terrorists. More recently, of course, we had the murder of Jamal Khashoggi at the hands of Saudi allies. And of course, our response to both murders has been very different. And I think a great shame on the administration that it has sought to really, I think, cover for the Saudi family in the wake of that brutal killing. But back then, we came together in a bipartisan way, passed legislation to call upon the State Department as part of its annual report on human rights to report on how countries were doing in terms of press freedom, where the problem spots were around the world, what countries were allowing the murders of journalists to go uninvestigated or their perpetrators to go unprosecuted or unpunished. And, you know, sadly, over the years since, we have seen not an improvement in the situation involving press freedom, but rather a decline in those nations that have a free press. And this is one of the broader challenges that we face as a country and around the world. And that is that we see a real rise of autocracy around the globe, a rise of authoritarianism, and with that, a decline in the freedom of the press. But you know, back then, uh, Mike Pence and I were able to work together on these issues. I still find bipartisan support on press freedom. Uh, Steve Shabbat is the current uh, Republican co-chair of this caucus that I uh, helped to co-found. I do wish that Mike Pence was as much a champion for freedom of the press uh, in administration as uh, he was in Congress. I especially want to um, uh, express my appreciation for the visionary leadership of uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, uh, who brought this legislation uh, and uh, who invited us to partner in his vision uh, for uh, expanding uh, awareness of the people of the United States and the people of the world of the repression of the free press. But, uh, of course, the administration now is you know, one of the more severe threats to the freedom of the press. The fact that the president can almost weekly call the press the end of the people, even during press conferences, uh, he has lashed out at the press. It's become really a, a talking point, a cheering point at his rallies. So things have changed quite dramatically, uh, sadly, uh, in terms of press freedom within the United States. New attacks on press freedom and attacks around the world have just increased this week, China announced that it was expelling American journalists, not only from China, but from Hong Kong. This obviously has key implications for freedom of the press, but it also has real severe implications for health, because if we can't count on good information coming out of China and have some kind of fact check on representations made by the Chinese government, then we don't know how much we can rely on what they're telling us about how they're succeeding or failing to control this pandemic. Exactly. Yeah, I think out of all of this in the last three and a half years, I think the attacks on the free press in this country, they just terrify me. It's everything that you said in your closing statements. Truth matters. And to get that truth out there is vital to the American people. So the House decided not to impeach after the Mueller probe. 
but then impeached over the Ukraine scandal. Can you talk to us a little bit about what it was like behind the scenes as you were making these decisions, these historic decisions? From the very beginning of the Trump administration, we were confronted with the need to investigate what the Russians had done in terms of interfering in the 2016 election. These innumerable secret meetings that Trump campaign was having with Russian contacts and lying about. And there were a number of things that became apparent as we were conducting the investigation. And then later, the special counsel was conducting its parallel investigation. We certainly saw overtures and evidence of collusion between the Russians and the Trump campaign. And you seldom, as an investigator and prosecutor, I can tell you, seldom see this put in writing, but you had a Russian delegation offering dirt to the Trump campaign, dirt on Hillary Clinton, and put it in writing and write to Don Jr., the president's son, and say that they were offering this dirt as part of the Russian government's effort to help the Trump campaign. And the Trump campaign's response was, if it's what you say it is, that they would love it. They would love the help. And Don Jr. arranges the secret meeting at Trump Tower, and their disappointment at the meeting was that the dirt they got from the Russian delegation wasn't better dirt. But of course, they would then lie about having any such meetings and contacts. They would lie about what that meeting was about and claim it was about adoptions. And this was, I think, among the most direct evidence that the Trump campaign sought to collude with the Russians, and the Russians were certainly willing. But, of course, there were any number of other contacts between the Trump campaign and the Russians that we needed to investigate and and did over enormous obstruction by the Trump campaign and Trump administration. That obstruction being so profound that, of course, the special counsel was appointed because part of the obstruction was the firing of James Comey. But then there were numerous other acts outlined ultimately in the Mueller report of obstruction of justice as well as these innumerable secret and lied about contacts between the Trump campaign and Russia. Your report for those who have taken the time to study it is methodical and it is devastating. It tells the story of a foreign adversary's sweeping and systematic intervention in a close U.S. presidential election. That should be enough to deserve the attention of every American, as you well point out. But your report tells another story as well. The story of the 2016 election is also a story about disloyalty to country, about greed, and about lies. Your investigation determined that the Trump campaign, including Donald Trump himself, knew that a foreign power was intervening in our election and welcomed it, built Russian meddling into their strategy, and used it. I want to make sure that Bob Mueller has the advantage of the evidence that we've been able to gather, but equally important that Bob Mueller is in a position to determine whether people knowingly committed perjury before our committee. So are you going to put out the transcripts of all your witnesses? Uh, It's our intention to put all the transcripts out. Now, we may have to redact a few of them. The vast majority are completely unclassified. So Um, there's a tremendous legal jeopardy for some of these witnesses. There may very well be. Uh, If, for example, the reports of these emails are accurate uh, involving Roger Stone. You interviewed uh, Roger Stone. Yes, we did. And it sounds like there's real questions about how what he testified to you comports with new information coming out publicly. Correct. During the course of our investigation, once the Mueller report came out, of course, we continually had to debate what are the consequences for the president's 
misconduct, given that the Justice Department took the position and Mueller, we were confident all along, would, would take the same position, even as we disagreed with it, that couldn't indict a sitting president. That meant that the only remedy was impeachment. Yet we were being stymied uh, in our investigation. The Judiciary Committee subpoenaed Don McGahn and others, and of course they refused those subpoenas. Even now we are still in the courts after McGahn was subpoenaed almost a year ago. And in the midst of this, we learned of even more serious and, in my view, more egregious misconduct when we learned that the president had sought to coerce Ukraine into interfering in the next election. And so we had a... Russian interference in the last election. We had the president trying to coerce another foreign country to interfere in the next election. And, you know, the reservations I had about moving forward with impeachment, given the difficulty of getting a conviction in the Senate, were overcome by, by both the fact that he was engaged in once again an even more serious misconduct, but also the fact that that misconduct, the Ukraine misconduct, had one of its crucial moments the day after Bob Mueller testified when the president got on the phone with President Zelensky and sought to coerce Zelensky into this smear campaign against the Bidens. The fact that he would do so the day after he felt that he had finally beat the rap on the Russia investigation told me that he will not be deterred if the Congress takes no action. And to me, that made the impeachment inquiry inevitable. And ultimately, of course, we developed sufficient evidence where it was necessary to impeach him. It just felt like as an outsider watching in, it was an unchartered territory. And I used this thing to myself as this was unfolding in the news. I would think to myself, I can't even imagine how you, a member of Congress or Speaker Pelosi, was actually digesting this as it was coming to you. It must have been the biggest, like, he did what? What do you, what? Because it did feel like there's such blatant disregard for the office of the presidency. And it was just mind-blowing to see it unfold. And I've often thought about what it must have been as you were all discovering. You know, and I believe he's committed many impeachable offenses. Is there a chance that he could possibly become the first president to be impeached twice? Well, I mean, there's no telling what this president is capable of doing and what that would require the Congress to do. So anything is possible with this president. But I think that part of the reason why the Russia investigation, the Mueller investigation felt different to the country than what we learned about the president's misconduct on Ukraine is that the country learned about the president's misconduct vis-a-vis Russia and that of all of his henchmen, the Manaforts and Stones and Cohens and others. They learned about it in drips and drabs over a two-year period. And, you know, I've often felt that if the country learned at one time about everything the president did vis-a-vis Russia and the president's obstruction of justice, it would have been a very different result and different impact on the country. Ukraine, by contrast, people learned about in very short order. From the moment we learned there was a whistleblower complaint that had been withheld from Congress to the point where we had witnesses starting to come in to be deposed and later in open hearings, we developed the facts in very short order. And it was no no easy undertaking given the fact that we got not a single document from the administration. Most complex criminal cases, complex white-collar cases, and this was essentially a complex white-collar scheme, are very document-driven. But here, 
we had an almost complete lack of documents except for a you know relatively small handful that were provided by some of the witnesses but nonetheless we were able to bring in a lot of very courageous public servants people like Marie Yovanovitch and Bill Taylor and David Holmes and others and develop a very clear picture of this president's misconduct in in a short period of time and it is you know certainly possible that the president will go on to commit other egregious acts at any given point i do think that the remedy we really have available for us because the Republican Senate has made it clear they're not going to show the requisite courage almost no matter what the president does. Our remedy is really at the polls, which are going to be before us before we know it. And we simply are going to need to register every eligible voter in the country and turn them out to vote to end this nightmare. I think the good news is that the people who feel the way we do compared to those that identify with the president, we dramatically outnumber them. It's just that our folks don't always vote. But if we get our people registered and we turn them out, uh, we can make sure that this is a, a bad and soon distant uh, memory. And we can begin to mitigate uh, the damage to so many of our institutions, to our standing around the world. And uh, that, that day can't come too soon. Well, I was in the room for the first two days of the impeachment trial, and I've seen some, you know, amazing things in person and amazing performances done by amazing actors. But I was blown away by you. And I think the reason I was just so taken by how you were able to just had so much information and it was so succinct but understandable And everyone else, you know, whether it was the management team or the defense team, they were great. They were competent. Everyone was there. They were present in the room. But they were all reading their statements in a way that made it sound very preconceived and rehearsed. But you, I felt like I was watching one of the greatest improv actors of all time. You were almost never in the pages, we call it in the acting world, you were off book because I never felt like I was watching someone read. So can you walk me through, because I'm as an actor so curious, to what your process was for the preparation of the trial? First of all, thank you. I appreciate it. You're way too kind, but I appreciate it nonetheless. I was so moved by you, Congressman. Thank you. You know, I started doing something during the hearings, which wasn't really a conscious decision at first, but it seemed an effective way to communicate. I ultimately started doing it at each of the hearings and then during the trial. And that is, I would take notes during the course of the witness's testimony. And then at the end of the hearing, normally you do a rather perfunctory close and the ranking member does a perfunctory close where you say, thank you to the witnesses. And that concludes our hearing, blah, blah, blah. But there's no no real limitation on what you can say when you conclude a hearing. You can say whatever you want, particularly as chair. And I had heard these witnesses testify when we deposed them, so it wasn't as if what they were saying was necessarily new, although each time you hear it, you appreciate different things. But I would take notes on things that were particularly striking to me. And at the end of the first day, I did a summary of what I thought was significant about what we had heard. And my staff and others commented that they thought the the summary that I did was really effective and was, was an important part of 
what the takeaway was. Not everyone was going to get to watch the entire day of a particular hearing. And it, so it added the vital context and brought home the most important points, or so I was told. So I, I started doing that as a routine matter. I'd take notes during the day, and then as we were getting close to the end of the day, I would number my notes on the page in terms of a rough order in which I thought I could tell a coherent story about what we had heard. And what I decided on the advice of my staff is that I was often more effective when I was not reading, but when I was more or less improvising, as you were saying. And so I tried to use the same practice during the trial when we would get to the end of the day and and use an opportunity, whether it was a question during the question and answer, or it was the end of motion, or it was a closing statement for the day to get off script. And there's obviously risk in doing that, but I think it allowed me to speak directly to the senators in an unrehearsed way. And I think that those ended up being some of the more powerful ways to communicate. So I kept doing it, but I appreciate it. I I remember when we took up the impeachment on the House floor and I was asked to do the closing on House floor, one of my colleagues came up to me afterwards and said, you know, that was really pretty risky of you to do the closing and an impeachment before the House without using notes. And it hadn't really occurred to me that I'd done that until he said that. And I said, I'm glad you didn't say that beforehand because you would have freaked me out. Right, exactly. Well, it was so effective. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I was saying some of the most harsh things you can say about someone on the Senate floor without having your words taken down. I was saying the president didn't know right from wrong, that he didn't know how to tell the truth, that he had no moral compass, that he didn't care about the country, only himself, that he sought to coerce an ally during war by withholding military aid. And there wasn't a single time that the Republicans shook their heads as if to say, no, that's not true. No, he would never do that. They didn't disagree with that assessment of the president in any way, shape or form. They understand exactly who this guy is. The only time that I got a reaction, ironically, was when I suggested that the president would be vindictive and cited that CBS story about one of the president's advisors saying that Republicans would have their heads on pikes if they crossed him. Right. And then you had all that faux outrage. But that was more of a reflection on the senators than it was on the president. But, you know, it's interesting to me that it's certainly the impression I got was they they know exactly what this president is and what he represents. They're just too scared to do anything about it. And it's what made Mitt Romney's response that much more powerful. And frankly, you know, what what Doug Jones did and Joe Manchin and others, the courage that they showed, the dozens of House members from very difficult districts that voted to impeach, a lot of them freshmen, a lot of them members of the military, former members of the military who understand duty and courage and sacrifice. You know, I ended up feeling quite uplifted at the end of the trial 
because of the courage that these folks showed, even though so many of the Republican senators lacked that same courage. But don't you see it's your work that gave them the permission? Because had you not laid it out in the way that you did, if you hadn't been that effective, they couldn't vote that way. So really, that's a partnership between what you were able to do and what they felt that they could morally do based on what you were able to do. So, well, you know, here I need to tell you that it was very much a partnership on our end as well. We we had the staff of really five committees working seamlessly together to put on such a powerful case to interweave the video testimony from the House yeah, and that was slides brilliant. and transcripts and documents, and also the my managers, my fellow managers, who you know put every moment and weekends and nights into preparing. You know, I had the advantage of having presided over the depositions and then the hearings, so I had heard the testimony at least twice. You know, people like Jason Crow came onto it not being on either the Intelligence or Judiciary Committees and had to come up to speed practically overnight and others as well. And it was really a remarkable team effort, I think, on everyone's part. Well, you mentioned before that the Republicans were scared and based their votes on fear. And you yourself have been a target of the president. He even accused you of treason. I think Adam Schiff is a deranged human being. I think he grew up with a complex for lots of reasons that are obvious. I think he's a very sick man. And he lies. He should resign from office in disgrace. And frankly, they should look at him for treason. Adam Schiff has got the smallest, thinnest neck I've ever seen. Uh, This is a... A fraudulent crime on the American people, but we'll work together with Shifty Shift and uh, Pelosi and all of them. I'm wondering, what is it like to have the president of the United States make accusations like that against you? Well, you know, sadly, I had to get used to it. It's now been, I think, quite literally hundreds of tweets from the president attacking me. But I remember the first time, you know, it's quite jarring. Uh, the first time he attacked me on Twitter was probably three years ago. Sleazy Adam Schiff, you know, XYZ. And, you know, in a normal world, having the president of the United States attack you or call you sleazy is kind of a big deal. Uh, And I remember my my then 13-year-old son was at camp, and one of the nice things about camp is they take away your electronics. Right. So when my wife and I went to pick him up, I thought I should tell him about this before he heard it from one of his friends. And I said, Eli, I want you to know that the president called me sleazy. It's not a big deal, but I just thought you should know. And you know, he paused for a moment to, I think, try to figure out what this means. And then he looks up and he says, can I call you sleazy? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, unless you want me to call you sleazy junior. Um, <laughs> but uh, you oh, know, I, I, I remember I remember talking to Mike Thompson right after that first tweet attacking me. And Mike said, Adam, you should tweet back when they go low, we go high. Go fuck yourself. Um, <laughs> yes, you can say that. that. Mike, uh, I'm not sure I can tweet that out, but I appreciate the sentiment. But we all know that he has this way of rallying up his base. So, I mean, there are moments where, you know, being as vocal as I am, that I'm fearful for my safety. I mean, do you fear for your safety? Do you have protection? I certainly have 
security concerns I didn't used to have. 52-year-old Jan Meister, who was apparently watching Fox News and may have been drunk, got mad, Googled Adam Schiff's office number, and left a vulgar voicemail, expletive after expletive, including the phrase, I'll blow your effing brains out. There are people being prosecuted in different parts of the country for threatening to kill me, and I've had to adjust and take precautions. You know, we're in an unfortunate time when the president can push this bile out. It can be amplified on Fox, and there are evenings in which the whole Fox prime time is seemingly devoted to vilifying me. And, you know, that percolates through parts of the dark web, and it reaches people who are not well. And that's un unfortunately both a facet of the online world we live in, but, but also a president who appeals to people's uh, baser instincts, people who sees good people on both sides of a you know, neo-Nazi rally. So I, I've had to acclimate to that, and I'm not alone by any means, sadly. Others have had to acclimate to that too. But I am taking precautions, which I'm not at liberty to go into on your podcast, but trying to be safe. You have to stay safe. We need you. What do you think that that's the most dangerous aspect of Trump and who he is, is his ability to to stir up or to reignite, you know, whether it be xenophobia or violence in general or racism or white supremacy, just that very baseline of hatred. Do you think that's the most dangerous thing about him? Or what do you think is the most dangerous thing about him? Well, you know, there are a great many uh, at the moment uh, and during this health crisis, incompetence kills. Uh, and we have seen, uh, you know, over the last three and a half years, an administration that has been characterized by the worst form of incompetence. And so right now I'm, I'm worried about the incompetence of the administration and the impact during a, a real bona fide crisis in the country. But I, I'm also deeply concerned about how he is, you know, tearing apart the social fabric of the country, pitting some people against other people. And this is the first president in, in my lifetime who seems to get up every morning determined to find new and inventive ways to tear the country apart and, and pit people against each other. And, you know, even in his tweets this week and calling this the China virus, he's appealing yeah. to people's xenophobia. And he does it quite deliberately and quite consciously. He thinks it's a re-election strategy. But, uh, you know, in a time of crisis, it's, it's, it's terrible enough. But over the long term, it does such damage to our social cohesion. You know, all the attacks on our institutions and the rule of law will cause long-term damage that we'll have to repair and mitigate just as we did after Watergate. Uh, and you know, part of our standing in the rest of the world will be very difficult to recover. Uh, you know, a, a new and better president, I think, can begin some very important steps immediately. But for a long time, the rest of the world is going to wonder whether Donald Trump was a momentary bout of insanity for the United States, much like uh, Europe uh, and Brexit, or whether this is uh, something that is likely to recur in the future that merely has gone into remission. So, the, you know, there are, I think, just uh, enormous dangers and uh, an enormous amount of damage that has been undertaken by this president. And the best thing we can do, obviously, is make this a one-term nightmare only and begin the process of putting the pieces back together. Well, let's talk about the election for a second. Are you concerned 
about election security? I am. You know, our polling places are still not as secure as they should be. There are key voting jurisdictions with no paper trail. There are other voting jurisdictions that are using a technology so old that you can't buy software upgrades because they don't make them anymore. And if the elections we just had in California and in L.A. County are example, which were plagued with problems of people showing up at the polling place and their names not appearing, of new touchscreen systems that are very poorly designed. I requested an absentee ballot because I got a movie and I was going on location. And they told me that I was not on the rolls. So I had to re-register They mailed ballots to constituents in the Legion Valley, absentee ballots, showing that they were in a different congressional district. I mean, it was just marred with problems. And those, as far as we know, were all self-inflicted. So we're barely ready for problems absent foreign interference, let alone if we have foreign interference. But I worry even more, frankly, about, as I did in 2016, the the Russians' ability to influence the voters even more than the vote itself by pushing out propaganda on social media by fanning division, by suppressing the vote in minority communities, by using a lot of the same tactics they used uh, three and a half years ago, but using them in a more sophisticated way, using new technologies like deep fake technology uh, that you and I uh, spoke about when we got together at that town hall. Yeah. These are the things that I worry about the most, frankly, is the ability of foreign powers, particularly Russia, to attempt to intervene in the election by influencing the voters. How is there no regulation on these vendors on the voting machines? That seems like such a no-brainer of something that actually needs to be regulated. There's zero regulation on those vendors. Yeah. Well, you know, part of the challenge we've had is that the administration of elections has been handled at a local level, not at the federal level. And when we have tried to pass legislation to set certain standards, uh, even basic things like the requirement of a paper trail had enormous Republican opposition. Now we're confronting a different kind of a challenge, and that is that one of our best ways to defend ourselves is by gathering good intelligence, by understanding what are our adversaries doing and exposing what foreign powers are doing and how they're trying to manipulate American public opinion. Right. But because the intelligence community came in and briefed Congress, the president fired the former acting director of national intelligence, McGuire, and instead put Rick Grinnell, an ambassador with no experience, somebody, frankly, was one of my Twitter trolls before he became an ambassador. Wow. You know, these people get their jobs by auditioning on Fox and through social media as being the most rabidly pro-Trump person they can be. And that's all you need to get Donald Trump's attention and to get a high position. He's now the head of our intelligence agencies. He has no experience except for being a lackey of the president. And so can we rely on what the top of the intelligence community has to say in terms of Russian plans and intentions? You may have seen that just this week, the Justice Department dropped the case against Concord Management, this company run by Putin's chef, the one who organized the social media campaign to help Donald Trump in the last election. They dismissed the case against this group. Now, the Justice Department claimed that it did so because it would have required them to compromise sources and methods if it went forward with the prosecution. That's undoubtedly something that would have been considered by the Justice Department when the case was indicted. But that was a different Justice Department. That was a Justice Department under Jeff Sessions, who, you know, is no great model either, but at least maintained some independence from the president. 
whether this dismissal, which the president is essentially gleeful and plotting on Twitter, is really because of sources and methods, we don't know, because Bill Barr has turned the Justice Department into Donald Trump's private law firm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're going into the next election with an administration that is hostile to the idea of holding the Russians at bay and skeptical of any evidence of Russian interference and unwilling to share it with the country, let alone Congress. So that presents a new difficulty, which, you know, on the Intelligence Committee, one of my top priorities in the next several months is going to be election security, making sure that our intelligence agencies continue to do their job and share with Congress what they're seeing about our adversaries so that the American people are protected. But that's a job that's gotten much more difficult lately. Well, presuming that a Democrat wins, what do you think are the very first things a new administration should do? What happens on day one? I keep saying to myself, who would want to be president after this guy? There's such a mess to clean up. There is a big mess to clean up. I think the first step should be bringing the country together and extending a a hand and, and trying to address these divisions that uh, President Trump has created. We in Congress and I think the new president are also going to have to enact brand new protections to protect the independence of the Justice Department and the judiciary to make sure that the press is uninterfered with. I, among other things, have enormous skepticism about something that appears uh, to be unrelated to press freedom but is very much related to press freedom. And that is the President of the United States potentially punishing Amazon as a way of going after Jeff Bezos and the Washington Post. Right. And we don't know whether the contract decision toward a massive new contract to a competitor of Amazon, a federal contract, was because the other company had the best bid or because this was the president's way of punishing the Washington Post. Right. The president's secret meeting a couple of years ago with the Postmaster General, his efforts to raise postal rates on Amazon looked like pure use of government power to silence and censor the press for the same reason. And we're going to have to look at whatever new laws are necessary to, in effect, make statute what we thought were inviolable norms, which we have found in this president and with today's Republican Party utterly unwilling to defend our institutions, are not inviolate norms at all, but can be violated apparently with impunity. There's a lot to feel right now, and there's a lot to feel really hopeless about, right? You have what's going on politically, the coronavirus, just the state of things in the United States. Will you leave us with your best advice to Americans right now who may be feeling hopeless? We're going to get through this. I have every confidence, and I felt this way all along. The country has been through worse in the past. We've been through times more divided and more deadly as during Vietnam. And of course, there's nothing more devastating the country than the wars that we've been through, including the Civil War. So we've been through more difficult times, and we will get through this as well. We're going to get through the coronavirus pandemic. We're each going to do our part. And I think Americans are responding right now. They're taking unprecedented steps to do something very difficult, which is to wall themselves off from each other for a period of time so that we can mitigate this crisis. But we'll we'll get through the current pandemic. We'll have an opportunity to replace this president in a few months. A new administration can begin to restore the ideals of America 
And then we just got to guard against any recurrence of this kind of xenophobic populism. Uh, but we're going to get through this. And, you know, what we do right now will have a big impact on how soon we get through it and how quickly we bounce back. So let's just take this one day at a time. Today, let's concentrate on keeping ourselves healthy and safe and our loved ones healthy and safe. Let's do what we can in our own individual ways. Everyone has a role to play in terms of protecting the health of our society, but also the health of our democracy. And we'll get through this. And uh, we'll come out on the other side. We'll look back on this time as an awful gauntlet we had to run, but one that we ran through nonetheless. So people should, I think, come through this as I did, through the trial with optimism about the future and knowing that this is a country of enormous strength and resilience and we will bounce back from this difficult time. You're amazing, Congressman Schiff. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Madam Speaker, my colleagues, my fellow Americans, I rise to support the impeachment of President Donald J. Trump. When a man, unprincipled in private life, desperate in his fortune, bold in his temper, possessed of considerable talents, having the advantage of military habits, despotic in his ordinary demeanor, known to have scoffed in private at the principles of liberty, when such a man is seen to mount the hobby horse of popularity, to join in the cry of danger to liberty, to take every opportunity of embarrassing the government, the general government, and bringing it under suspicion, to flatter and fall in with all the nonsense of the zealots of the day, it may justly be suspected that his object is to throw things into confusion, that he may ride the storm and direct the whirlwind. These are the words of Alexander Hamilton, written in 1792. Could we find a more perfect description of the present danger emanating from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? Oh, I remember after Bill Clinton was acquitted in his impeachment trial, he came out and made a statement of contrition. He apologized to the nation for his actions and got on with the business of governing. It's a far cry from the current and temporary occupant of the White House. Donald Trump lacks the humility, self-awareness, or basic decency to serve as president. And while he continues to sully the office, it is so important that we have a vocal, loud, and determined opposition. People like Congressman Schiff to use all of the constitutional powers at their disposal to stop Trump from inflicting the worst harm he is capable of. We've never had a president this low before, but it gives me hope that the Democratic leadership in the House is as prepared, competent, and determined as it has ever been to fight for us against a would-be dictator. Remember this as we continue to vote not just for a replacement president, but for a new batch of senators and representatives to do our business in Washington. We need more Adam Schiff's, more Nancy Pelosi's, more squads, and fewer of the rubber stamp puppets in Senate. You can make it happen. Keep your heart and your head in the game. There's a long way to go until November. 
Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the 